It's Wednesday, October the 20th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm Hoover's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. And while I can lay claim to that way too long job title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcaster these days. And if you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check it out yourself. That's hoover.org. Go onto that page, click on where it says publications, then go to where it says podcast, and you'll see all sorts of interesting things we're doing in the way of history, economics, culture, libertarianism. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcaster inbox each and every month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is my colleague, Jacqueline Schneider. She is a Hoover Fellow, her research focusing on the intersection of technology, national security, and political psychology, with a special interest in cybersecurity, unmanned technologies in Northeast Asia. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Naval War College's Cyber and Innovation Policy Institute and a senior policy advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Before beginning her academic career, Jacqueline Schneider spent six years as an Army Air, as an Air Force officer excuse me, in South Korea and Japan and is currently a reservist assigned to U.S. Cyber Command. Jackie, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. And I have to say, I just recently changed my reserve job. So I have the honor now of serving the uh, Space Force. Congratulations. Congratulations. Can you get me some cool swag? <laughs> I think they're still working on some of that. I look forward to it. A note, by the way, uh, I call you Jackie, as I know you like to go by, uh, which I wholeheartedly support because Jacqueline is an impossibly difficult name to spell correctly. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Second note is you also go by Jackie Grace on your email. Uh, that is a name I love. If I had a daughter, I would seriously consider that. How did you get Grace? Well, I was supposed to be, I was born on a Tuesday. So, so supposed to be Tuesday's child is full of grace, but um, I've never been extremely graceful. So I think it's probably a bit of a, a, a miss, but it's, <laughs> but it's a pretty name. Okay, I'm going to rebut that because uh, you rather grace, uh, gracefully uh, led a group of fellows, uh, including myself, uh, through the process with which we came up, uh, something which we introduced today called our Veteran Fellowship Program. Jackie, can you explain what we've done? Yeah, I think this is a really unique opportunity. Um, the Veteran Fellowship Program, which we're launching this year, it's non-residential, so you're not living here, but it takes um, veterans from all of the services from a wide variety of different backgrounds and that are all interested in public policy. And the idea is that Hoover provides them with some resources, um, some uh, access to scholars and the various networks that Hoover has so that you can take these veterans who are really interested in taking their previous service and um, converting or, <laughs> or moving or transitioning that service to more public service more broadly. Um, and so I think we've selected a really amazing group of first cohort that um, is going to go change the world. Right. Ted Fellows and all uh, uh, representing various branches. And it's a one-year affiliation, right? Yeah. And what are they expected to do in their one year with Hoover? Well, you know, a lot of fellowships are, are focused on research. And I think that's kind of what's different about this fellowship is that these are these candidates that we've selected, these, these fellows that we've selected have a, a public policy kind of project that mm -hmm. they have come up with. So they're trying to make, they're trying to work on issues um, ac across the span, actually. I think we have um, energy, we have cryptocurrencies, we have um, uh, some veterans issues. There's, there's folks that are looking at um, 
the, the their communities and building um, infrastructure within their communities. So the idea is that they're really kind of like using this opportunity to build out almost like a, a business plan, but for policy. Mm-hmm. And we call it a capstone project. Yes. Uh, that's an interesting turn of phrase. I'm not familiar with capstone project. What does that mean exactly? I think the idea of a capstone is that, you know, you have a culmination, that uh-huh. you have these series of different um, learning experiences, and the project right. is the culmination of all these different experiences. Mm-hmm. And as I understand, Jackie, there are three broad things to the capstone project. They are addressing challenges faced by advanced capitalist societies. One, second, America's role in the world. And three, technologies, opportunities, and risk to America's economy, democratic governance, and national security. Uh, whose ideas were these? Yours ideas? Uh, Director Rice's? Who, who exactly came up with those categories? I think those are actually Director Rice's categories. And I think they broadly represent a lot of what Hoover works on and what Hoover is interested in, um, already has you know fellows and expertise in and is interested in learning more about. Yeah. And this really is a passion thing for her because she is obviously very, very uh, interested in the, uh, the, the, the direction of veterans in today's society. But she's also interested in communities very much. You know, the Hoover Institution traditionally deals with international affairs and national affairs. But I think part of what Condoleezza Rice wants to do with us is actually get us more local. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where this group is so fascinating. I mean, we have some projects that are focused, you know, on the inner city in in Newark. We have others that are focused, you know, um, in Guam, for example. Some that are talking about firefighting, which is (laughs) extremely apropos in California. The wonders of all wonders, it rained this week. Um, So I think we have a really broad base of projects that are kind of located all over the United States. Right. And for people listening to this who might be interested in this, um, in terms of application, uh, there are a couple of caveats here. Uh, one, we're looking for military veterans uh, from the Air Force, the Army, the Coast Guard, Marines, National Guard, Navy, or your aforementioned Space Force. Uh, but second, Jackie, uh, we're also looking for veterans who served on active duty within the last 20 years. Uh, for those in the National Guard, the service must include at least one period of activation at the state for federal level. So we are looking for younger veterans. You say younger. I mean, this is the last 20 years. I think these are the these are the candidates that um, signed up after 9-11. Yes. Generally, or served during that time period. Jackie, I say younger because I had to go down and uh, and enroll for the draft in 1980. So I'm giving my age <laughs> away right now. But so this generation is younger to be able. We're talking basically, you know, under the age of 50 and for the most part under the age of 40, right? Yes, I think that's true. There might be a few that are over the age of 40, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, relatively um, young. I mean, this is kind of my generation of veterans right here. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because I did not want to ask you your age. I'm smart enough not to do that. And I didn't want to put you in an awkward spot, but this is your generation. So I'd like to talk a bit about you in particular now and about how exactly you came to service. So you are a Texan originally. You're from Texas, I believe. The beautiful, wonderful state of Texas from the best city in Texas, San Antonio. Okay, which San Antonio's believe. Um, where's your accent? <laughs> well, I mean, I left for college when I was 18. And to be fair, I think Texas is sometimes like stereotyped as having one accent. No, but if anyone no. who's lived there knows there's a variety of different regions within Texas. And some regions are, are more or less likely to hear different kind of twangs and some not at all. I mean, San Antonio is a very military city. I think it actually has quite a few. And um, even before Texas was like a cool place for people to move yeah. to, it had a lot of people from a lot of different places. I think it's home to USAA, isn't it? 
It is. Yes. <laughs> My dad used to work for USAA and yeah. I mean, San Antonio is a big town with a lot of small town feel. So everybody knows somebody who works at USAA if you're from San Antonio. Right. So you left Texas for the, I don't know, greener pastures, but you went to Columbia University? Yes, in okay. New York City. The Morningside Heights. How did you end up at Columbia? Um, well, I'd like to say that I was really deliberative and um, decided that was the best fit for me. But I'll be honest, I applied to every Ivy League and top 10 school that had uh, an Air Force ROTC program. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the program I got into that had a that my Air Force ROTC scholarship would cover. So um, I think it ended up being a, a fantastic match for me because it's um, a really vibrant, wonderful city. And in a vibrant, also intellectual environment. Um, and that makes Columbia in a lot of ways unique. The Columbia relationship with the military is an interesting one. I, I do my I do my homework for these podcasts to, to honor my guest. And I did a little homework on Columbia. Uh, you might think Columbia and the military, maybe Dwight Eisenhower comes to mind because he was the president of Columbia before he was the president of the United States. Uh, also work on the Manhattan Project was done on Columbia, Columbia if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I yeah. took Spanish in, the, in the, that building where the Manhattan Project was worked on. <laughs> Hopefully not still radioactive. And uh, also, uh, I went back and I found an article in the 2011, Jackie, when ROTC was reinstated at Columbia. And uh, one of the uh, Columbia officials involved with it claimed, uh, I'll take his word at this, he said that uh, Columbia produced more officers in World War II than did the U.S. Naval Academy. I mean... Maybe. <laughs> well, multi branches. <laughs> right. I mean, I think if you're if you're gen the Naval Academy can only generate naval recruits. So maybe Columbia right. was pumping out a lot of different um a lot of different services. And you have to remember, Columbia was actually a commuter school for a really long time. Right. So it's only recently that it kind of became this school that attracted both like international and national students from all over the world. So you had like a very, very strong kind of local New York population that was going to school in New York City. I was going right. to Columbia. So it had uh, recently reinstated ROTC when you went to Columbia, right? Yes, it was a very, very big debate when I was there. And I did Air Force ROTC, but I did it up at uh, Manhattan College. It's actually in the Bronx, even though it's called Manhattan College. So right. I, I never wore my uniform um, on the campus. Just, I didn't have to, like I would wear it up to Manhattan College. Mm -hmm. um, but we used, I guess, used to get pamphlets from people, you know, walking around, you know, ROTC people are awful. The military is bad. And they'd hand it to me. And I, you know, I'm in the class with these people. It's like, oh, I'm in ROTC. <laughs> Do you think I'm bad? Um, so I was there kind of in the midst of this debate that they were having about bringing um, ROTC back. And I was there, you know, as we made the decision to invade Iraq and we had just gone into Afghanistan because I, I actually started on September in, I, in 2001. So I signed my ROTC paperwork, September 10th, 2001. Wow. Um, so it was just, you know, it was a very heady time to be in New York City, but also a very heady time to be beginning your military career and really like at the, the beginning of a very new civil military relationship in the United States, I think. Yeah, I'm curious about this relationship. I have a very personal stake in this. My father was a Navy ROTC product uh, way before you and I, uh, 1956, University of Virginia. And for him, it was a life-changing experience, Jackie, because he went to uh, 
a school in Western Pennsylvania, a steel town outside of Pittsburgh. And he might've had a good life with ROTC, but it had been very limited horizons. ROTC plucked him out of that existence and gave him a choice of colleges. It's interesting. So his choices, Jackie, were the University of Virginia, where he ended up, uh, and Cornell and Pennsylvania. And uh, it's a very funny story. My uh, grandmother, his mother, desperately wanted him to go to Cornell. Uh, my father took a trip to Ithaca in the dead of winter and then <laughs> took a trip to Charlottesville in the springtime and, you know, <laughs> decision made right then and there. But um, the point is that elite universities were taking in elite students to, and ROTC was their path. Now it's kind of an interesting relationship right now. You mentioned Columbia's relationship where you had to go down to Manhattan to drill. Uh, if we look at Stanford right now, it's the same relationip uh, here as well. I think you have to go over to Berkeley to drill if you're in the Navy and I think uh, does Air Force uh, I think we have Air Force on Stanford don't we? Do, you to, do you go down to Santa Clara or is that the army that goes down to Santa Clara I think one or the other Yeah I mean I think it's what they call these are crosstown schools and yes, so yes. like in the Boston area for example, but you have tons and tons and tons of schools. It doesn't make sense for everybody to have an ROTC program. Right. So you generally have like one ROTC program in the metropolitan area. And then those are called like cross towns. Right. Um, sometimes they're cross towns because, you know, ROTC has been burned out of the campus, which is what happened at Columbia. <laughs> but a lot of times it's actually just very um, convenient because it's just expensive to have multiple ROTC detachments. And I believe at Harvard, you um, you go over to MIT to drill as well. In fact, uh, there's a very interesting piece about Harvard and its relationship uh, with ROTC. And um, really an amazing piece, Jackie. First of all, there's only one military historian at Harvard right now, which is kind of staggering for a great university. But the column, it was an op-ed piece, actually gave the impression that at Harvard, ROTC is kind of frowned upon, that others there kind of look down on it. And it's a sort of attitude that we're not going to train people for the military. We'll let other universities deal with that. In other words, and there's a sort of a carryover to Vietnam and the idea that we'll let less fortunate people go off and fight our wars for us. I don't know if you encountered that at Columbia, but um, we did a Goodfellows episode yesterday with H.R. McMaster, and we talked about this because our focus was on Colin Powell. And Colin Powell is famously an ROTC product from another university in New York, CCNY. And Powell always says, always pointed out in his life that he was a product of great public schools in New York, but it was ROTC that kind of kicked him in the rear because he said before he got into ROTC, he was a C student at CCNY. He was not, he's not really going places at the time. Yeah. I, I mean, when I was at Columbia, um, I never felt like um, there was discrimination against me individually, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I was an ROTC. There was a pretty healthy debate at the time that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was official right. Department of Defense policy. And so Columbia's um, kind of institutional um, stance was, we will let all, all these product, these programs back on campus as soon as Don't Ask, Don't Tell is uh, repealed. And I, I mean, actually they, they were true to their word. Um, right. Columbia actually has one of the largest veteran communities within their general studies school, which is kind of a, um, a school that's designed for people who have already had a bit of a career and then are going into an undergraduate. Um, and then I wanna say like for Harvard, I mean, I, I was never an undergraduate at Harvard, so I can't I right. cannot speak to the undergraduate Harvard ROTC experience. But I can say that 
Harvard has a history of um, bringing in military officers and those who have public service to go through, for example, Belfer School, which is their public policy program. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you look at the, um, you know, the list of, of people actually even that we have in our veteran fellowship cohort, there are a lot of veterans that get um, uh, Belfer and, and Harvard kind of um, masters, Harvard PhDs, Harvard Business School. So I maybe they don't want to grow ROTC officers, but they sure do admit the officers into their graduate programs. They do. What, uh, what drew you to tech and cyber? Well, I'm, I'm really interested in puzzles, um, things that don't have clear answers. And I, I, so I was an intelligence officer in the Air Force, mm -hmm. and I had done some technical work um, on the intelligence side. So when I went out to get my PhD, I was really interested in the intersection of these kind of emerging, what was then emerging technologies like cyber, um, right. and then how that was affecting these big politics that we, we've always talked about, like deterrence, uh, nuclear use, strategic stability. Um, and I, I, I was kind of bored with some of the other questions in deterrence, um, but was really drawn to these ones where we didn't have a lot of empirics and we didn't really understand how people were going to interact. Because fundamentally, emerging technologies, they create new capabilities, which is interesting. But right. more interesting is the, the ways in which we as individuals and organizations respond to these capabilities. And so that's what I'm fundamentally interested in. So whether it's cyber or AI or um, automation, um, the technology is interesting, but I'm more fascinated about how the characteristics of the technology um, interact with people's responses, emotional responses or organizational incentives to shape, I, I don't want to say irrational, irrational trajectories, but uh -huh. trajectories that you wouldn't kind of expect or wouldn't would kind of wouldn't come out of a game theory game theoretic model. And is this boutique or there would be more people in the service who are doing this than I would think? Oh, so I think there are a lot of people in the services that are really interested in in technology. I think there's actually a general fascination within the American way of warfare about technology and using technology as a substitution for, um, especially in recent years, kind of manpower and concerns about casualties. Um, and so you can trace it you know, back to Vietnam and also in the 90s, and there's these like really big narratives about military revolutions and the role that technology is gonna play in creating these you know, strategic effects where we're able to shoot from really long ranges at very uh -huh. limited political and economic it costs the United States. Right. And that theme about how technology is going to shape the American way of warfare, I think that continues today. But you can just add in like whatever the new flavor of technology is. Right. But it's generally like very similar narratives to what we've heard, at least going back to right after Vietnam, when there was a real kind of internal military um, rebuff of kind of the wars of attrition and the bloody conflicts that right. we saw play out with like Westmoreland um, and, and his generation, um, first in Vietnam, but actually before um, in the Korean War. Interesting. Let's uh, bounce back to the Veteran Fellowship Program for a second. Uh, you were integral in this regard. Um, I was asked, some other Hoover Fellows were asked to go through the applications and pick our choices. And I had a problem. Everybody was great. Everybody had a good story to tell. And I wanted to give one to everybody, but I had to decide kind of who was more worthy than others. But you were dealing peer-to-peer. -peer. You were dealing with fellow veterans. So tell me what you were looking for with the applicants. Well, I think first and foremost, I really wanted our fellowship, at least at this first cohort, to represent some of the diversity of experience. Mm -hmm. Because the post-9-11 veteran, 
it is not easy to define. This is not a group of people that had, they weren't even in one place, right? So a post 9-11 veteran could have spent a lot of time in Iraq, could have spent right. a lot of time in Afghanistan, could have right. actually spent their whole career in Asia. Um, and you know, you could have people who served in the 90s and then served after 9-11. And then you have others who joined after 9-11, right? And, and those are different kind of relationships with service and different mm -hmm. perceptions of threat. And so I think you have this wide variety of experience. And so what I was looking for is, can we reflect some of those wide varieties of experiences? And then as a veteran who has transitioned to my civilian life and, and taken things that I've learned from being a veteran into my new kind of life and, and in my concerns about you know, public policy, I was really looking for, um, for veteran candidates that had a strong sense of what they were going to bring to their communities through the, the project. Um, and so I think we, we um, I was very concerned that I didn't want us to only just pick people who like really good, look really good on their resume, right. or, um, you know, all our, the Harvard grads, for example, but that we also, cause that's not every veteran's experience. It's actually probably not the majority of veterans experience. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, all these people bring something very unique and interesting and important to what services after military service. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, some of the so characters of, of this young generation of veterans, because I, uh, I at all times I go through pop culture and look at veterans. And it's really interesting, Jackie, if you look at the World War II veterans, for example, uh, the greatest generation, they're lionized. Uh, you see productions like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers. Boy, it helps when you have Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks in your corner. Um, sometimes it's sentimental. And if you're, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Best Year of Our Lives. Uh, it's 1946 movie. You should watch it. It's uh, William Wyler, the great director. It's the highly the highest grossing film since Gone with the Wind, by the way. It's a story, Jackie, of three servicemen who come home from World War II. One's an Army Air Force bombardier. Another one's a Navy petty officer. Third one's an Army sergeant. And it's about their struggles adjusting to the civilian life. And it's very realistic and it's very, very heart rendering. Vietnam veterans, on the other hand. Uh, they have been treated brutally by pop culture. My God, where does the list end? The deer hunter apocalypse now coming home. Full Metal Jacket, born on the 4th of July, just movie after movie, just about trauma, victimization, not being wanted back in America, dealing with their service and so forth. But this generation, now I know we're still kind of relatively new in the process. The wars are still rather fresh, if you will. But when we look at the under 40 crowd, let's focus on the other under 40 crowd of vets, those who you know did maybe 10, 15 years or so, and now they're, they're cycling into the public sector. What, what are the challenges facing them, Jackie? Well, I think the perception, there's an outward perception of what this identity is. I think that's a challenge yeah. um, because I think my generation of veterans at this point might be, have, be more conflicted about what the meaning of their service has been than, than I think the public might <laughs> understand. Um, is, is this the notion of a good war or is it more complicated than that? I think there is the notion of the good word, but I think we're really, really trying to reconcile what the last 20 years of Afghanistan needs for my generation. Yeah. Um, my husband's a few years older. He's He was a 2001 um, Air Force Academy graduate. Flew, flew, FT, flew F-15s, right? F-16s, yeah. yeah. And he, it's his 20-year reunion coming ah. up, and he's really ambivalent about what the meaning of the last 20 years of his service have been mm -hmm. um and i think that is a really that reconciling because there are some of this veteran community that gave an extraordinary amount 
um, in these conflicts, extraordinary, you know, I mean, right. sacrificing in general, I think there was a real focus on you, know, you got to sacrifice family time. You need to sacrifice, you need to deploy all the time. Um, and I think there's a whole generate, there's a whole group of people who are wondering, did I get let down here? Did I get, let, I mean, what do, what do we do wrong? Was it us? Was it our politicians? Was it not really the public? I think that's different from Vietnam. I don't think anyone here thinks that it's the pub, not the public supporting the military. Right. Um, so I think it's a bit, I think that's a real challenge is this feeling of being conflicted. And then um, I think the other really large challenge is, you know, navigating the Byzantine <laughs> bureaucracy and administration that is kind of a veteran support. <laughs> so you have all these great benefits that you qualify for as a veteran. And a lot of them are very well-deserved and really important because they're tied to what happened on the battlefield. Um, but whew, the way the government has just really not invested in information technologies or, or um, reforming bureaucracies. And I think it becomes very, very difficult for, for veterans to to, to get all the benefits sometimes that they um, that they are allowed. And so I think that's a bit of a challenge as well. That's interesting. Uh, what about the path into college or do veterans tend to already have college educations? In other words, we look back at World War II and it's a, you know, the narrative is you come out of the war, then you go to college. It's George H.W. Bush. You go into college, you go on with the rest of your life. So, I mean, there's some extraordinary benefits that Congress had um, given the, the military after 9-11. So that I, I'm a... A post 9-11 GI Bill recipient. Uh -huh. um, I use them to help fund some of my uh, PhD. Mm -hmm. And so this extraordinary opportunity for folks to have basically a free education once they left uh, active duty service. Uh, I think it's six years of active, du active duty service. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a really great asset for the enlisted folks. And then I think there was a lot of focus, at least, I mean, I served in the Air Force, a lot of focus in the Air Force on making sure that our enlisted force that's coming in without a college degree are getting the opportunity to go to the community college, of the Air Force, um, to do online um, undergraduate programs. So, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I would hazard to say that this is probably the most educated force ever, and that this force has also had tons of benefits afterwards to be more educated. So, I think we have a veteran pool that is probably extremely qualified to continue to serve and, and help their country because of all the education that they've been afforded by, by their service. Right. Now, there are a lot of symbolic things we can do to make life better for veterans. We can always say thank you for your service. Uh, I, in the past, I uh, will sometimes buy beer for servicemen on airplanes. Uh, they're always completely taken aback when you do it, but I think that's a very nice gesture to show them you appreciate what they're doing. Uh, but in terms of substance things, Jackie, for example, you mentioned, you know, bureaucracy and red tape in terms of dealing with, you know, with veterans issues. What else can the government be doing to make life better for veterans in terms of transitioning? Um, you know, I mean, some of it's just easy stuff, like make it easier for um, veterans to access their records, um, make it easier for there to be a transition between the medical care that they're given um, in the civilian side and the medical right. care that they received. I mean, I have no idea where all my records ended up. <laughs> right. Gone, poof, disappeared in the, in the, um, in the internet ethos. Um, so there, I mean, there's simple things that they can do about information technologies. I mean, I think there's a larger conversation about um, 
the way in which the American society may potentially have put the military on a pedestal over the last 20 years because yes. of the amount of conflicts that we're on. Right. Um, and I think that is actually why some service members struggle a little bit with the thank you for your service, mm -hmm. um, because they they, there are some, well, like for me, when somebody says, if I'm in my uniform, cause I'm still a reservist and they say, thank you for your service. I feel a bit embarrassed. Really? Um, I, I've never, um, I was in Asia for my entire active duty. I didn't, you know, I was supposed to deploy to Iraq and two weeks before they sent us to Korea. Um, so, so, so you don't I, feel, you don't feel, you don't feel heroic necessarily. Is what oh, you're God, I, I yeah. don't, I yeah. feel like there are other people that deserve that. I mean, I right. actually reaped wonderful benefits. I got educational benefits. Um, I had an extraordinary job that I loved, you know? So right. for me, I, I, I get embarrassed because I feel like I don't really deserve that. And for others, they've almost given too much that yeah. it feels trite. So I think that's a very difficult and a very, um, I think it's very difficult. And I think we need to, what we need to do is stop treating veterans as if they are separate from the rest of American society. Right. They are generally an example of all the diversity within U.S. society, um, and so we need to find ways. The transition is not about you know, veteran. Now you're a civilian. It's like how do we you know integrate back into kind of a society that that really does represent veterans writ large. Um, right. So it's a bit of a complicated, I think, conversation right now. It sure sounds, you know, Jackie, I'm reminded there's a phrase in the army, it's you don't salute the man, you salute the uniform. So when people are thanking you for your service, in some regards, it's not to slight you, but they are in some regards, they're, they're honoring the uniform and what it stands for, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think sometimes, though, those who served or are veterans have a conflicted relationship about the uniform. The other thing about the uniform is that um, it makes mistakes, right? Um, right. Anybody who's worked with the Department of Defense knows that um, the Department of Defense has tons of problems with innovation, tons of problems with buying the right technology. They spend huge amounts of money on things that are ridiculous. They make bad, I mean, it's a giant bureaucracy, right? So you have this like conflicted relationship, especially like for me, I, um, I served six years active and I've done 10 as a reserve. My husband's done 20. You've seen like problems that like haven't been fixed over 16 20 years and so you're proud of your service you want to serve but like you want them to do better too <laughs> and i think i think you can be a patriot and i think you can be um proud of people's service and thankful for their service and also still hold the department of defense accountable for making better choices and how they man tripping man train and equip can you explain to me your dog collection at the naval war college my oh yeah. Um, so when I used to work at the Naval War College as a professor. It's in Rhode Island, right? Yes. Beautiful yeah. Newport, Rhode, Newport Island. Rhode Island. Right. Yes. And they had this um, this area, which was like on my way to coffee every morning. Mm -hmm. And it was the future, the, the future warfare gallery. And but it was all like machines and actually mostly like either sci-fi machines or or navy prototypes that had never actually ended up being funded and every time i walked through i thought the future force is about the force like where are the people in this we never talk about manpower we're so focused on technology um and because of that i wrote a piece in war on the rocks called blue hair in the gray zone right and it was all about like let's think about what are the 
what we perceive as a warrior and how our, our cultural perceptions of what we think is a warrior may be affecting kind of who really is the future force and thinking outside of the box when it comes to like what are the skills and types of people that we're going to need in future combat but what i did at the naval war college is i um bought a bunch of barbies that had different colored hair um or were out of you know what would be typically that was rags i put them in uniforms you know and, and i staged them inside the future force gallery with all these you know with headphones and like like they were calling in uav strikes and things like that um, and the public affairs officer contacted me and said you need to take these down immediately I don't want anyone to think that we condone people not being in regs. And they actually replaced my uh, Barbies with this like he hero kin man who was like in perfect Navy regs. He was like very, very in shape, which I thought was just really not indicative uh, actually at all. And typical surface warfare, warfare officers love you, love the Navy. Um, Navy, but it was really interesting. They were really, there was a real kind of sense of distaste for uh, and a sense of uncomfortableness with this idea that we might have people with man buns or blue hair serving in the military. Oh, well, lesson learned, I suppose. <laughs> I brought them with me to Hoover. <laughs> I look forward to seeing them. Uh, so you and I work on the campus of Stanford University, Jackie, and Stanford University is a notorious pipeline into the world of technology. Uh, I'm curious as to what the military can be doing in terms of drawing Stanford kids into the military. And then also the question, Jackie, of military people funneling into IT and funneling into Silicon Valley. Are there companies out there that are looking specifically to the military for talent or, you know, tell a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, so this has actually been a, um, this has actually evolved quite a lot in the last few years. Mm -hmm. So um, a few years ago, there was a, a an organization that was founded called the Defense Innovation Unit, at that time, Defense Innovation Unit X for experiment. Yes. Depends who you ask, some say it was experimental. Mm -hmm. um, and that was led by a gentleman named Raj Shah, who is actually now um, affiliated here at Hoover. And they, he created this outpost inside of Silicon Valley, which was really the first Department of Defense outpost, which was focused very specifically at commercial technology. So I'm not going to go necessarily to Lockheed or Boeing and ask them to develop something for me. I am going to use my networks within Silicon Valley, know what emerging technologies are coming up, and I'm just going to buy it off the shelf. Um, and so this was a really innovative idea at the time. Um, but since then, um, partly because of DIU and now their new leadership under Mike Brown, I think they've become a bit of like a, a center of gravity. And now there are a series of fellowships where you're taking people from the active duty and you're placing them inside Silicon Valley companies, um, as well as there are kind of going the opposite way where Silicon Valley companies are explicitly uh, recruiting veterans for different types of positions. So there, there's this, this kind of two-way street is starting. Um, and I think we are seeing more of, you know, personnel exchanges, but there really are, it's still very siloed within communities, you know, so you're not going to, um, if you're a serious like naval surface warfare officer, you're not going to get off the surface warfare officer track right. to do these tech fellowships. Just like if you are a fighter pilot, you're not leaving the jet where your mission qualified for to do these, these tech tracks, you know? So it's still kind of siloed within maybe like the information warfare community or the cyber community or the acquisition communities. Um, and then we're seeing, you know, I'm a reservist. The reserves is really kind of trying to 
to be the way in which we are able to recruit and bring people in from these populations because there are some more flexible ways to serve on the reserve side. Um, and so that's kind of a large recruitment effort um, from Silicon Valley talent. Um, but there's also like a series of organizations that are particularly focused on transitioning veterans into different organizations. Um, and I think like Amazon Web Services, for example, has a really, really strong relationship and um, track record of hiring veterans, partly because I think they're trying to sell more to the DOD now. Um, so, I mean, this, this relationship, it's evolving and it's actually maturing. So we're seeing much more, um, much more cross-pollination between the kind of traditional tech community and the defense community. It's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the reserve aspect, because if I were trying to um, pitch joining the military full-time, it'd be a challenge because number one, it's not a, kind of, it's not a countercultural existence. You're not going to have ping pong tables in your office and things like that. Uh, and second, it's not a pathway to instant riches. Well, to be fair, I think there are ping pong tables in the new Army Innovation Command, <laughs> or there okay. could be. And at a time, the, the, there was a Defense Innovation Unit offices in um, Cambridge. They no longer have them, but they were like very trendy and very cool. And there's right. a series of these little like startup organizations in like Austin, um, and they have these they call them software factories, right? Where they're like doing software development, where they try and emulate actually the look and feel of Silicon Valley. Um, but you're right about riches. I will say this, and for anybody who's listening, who's interested in serving, generally at the lower ranks, you're gonna be making very decent pay. Um, we usually can attract at the lower ranks. So I can attract somebody to um, between an 01 and an 04. My harder problem is um, attracting folks that are kind of more established in their career because the, the max that we're going to pay somebody in the federal government is about 178 this, right. around this. And it's really hard to take somebody who's making $400,000 hmm. and has built a lifestyle on $400,000 to then um, serve for 178. The other difficulty is the ethical um problems. There's a series of laws that make it very difficult if you have investments in companies that might do business with the DOD to mm -hmm. then serve. So these are good. I mean, you have these things, these rules there for a reason. These are ethical reasons, but it, it does make it harder sometimes to bring in top talent from the technical side, from the like the industry in general into the DOD. And um, so good intentions on the rules, Right. But it is really difficult. So is it a challenge to keep people after five years, Jackie, or 10 years? What's kind of what's kind of the cutoff? Um, I don't know what the current cutoff is. Um, so there's some there's gonna be some personnel who's listening who actually knows. So I think for a lot of I think for a lot of branches, part interrupt, you know, 20 years is usually kind of the magic number of some branches, because at 20 you can, you know, cash out and get benefits and all that and you become a beltway bandit or something like that. But but how is it different for cyber? Well, I mean, first off, a lot of this, whether the Department of Defense is actually transitioning to something that looks more like a 401k, the mm -hmm. blended retirement. Um, right. So a lot for a lot of there are other options besides the pensions so that's going to change um, people um, on the cyber side. And um, it is very difficult. Retention is extremely difficult. Um, where we get retention is in the officer corps. Right. So these are not. Um, we're actually using losing the young talent generally more likely. Officers mm -hmm. are generally not technologists themselves sometimes, but they're not right. trained to. Like officers are trained to be generalists. And so these people are actually less 
lucrative on the civilian side than some of our real technical prowess, um, you know, airmen or um, young army folks that are like working, you know, for NSA and they're 23 and they're doing crazy things. They are, those are a little bit harder to retain, but it's easier for me to retain the officer corps. Mm -hmm. But there are, there's new ways that we can hope to bring people in. There's this thing called the cyber accepted service, which was hoping to bring in civilians without having to go through the archaic and arcane processes of USA jobs. Um, and then there are some direct accession. So um, you don't have to go through OTS. You don't have to go through um, ROTC. You can just directly become an officer for the cyber side. So Congress has given the DOD a bunch of um, legal options, a bunch of kind of flexible options for hiring. But so far, the DOD has struggled to really use these, these kind of new projects, new, new options really effectively. And how aggressive is the private sector in terms of trying to cherry pick and pull out the best and the brightest in the service right now? I mean, I think they're like anyone, right? They want the best and the brightest no matter what, right? And right. a lot of them are coming from the, um, the military. That said, they may not know about that. I mean, when I, I'm, I'm showing my age, but when I got out, nobody was on LinkedIn who was in the military. Right. That was just right. not a thing. I think now you see more, especially of the younger group that are already on LinkedIn and building mm-hmm. kind of like a presence that didn't really happen until just recently. So I think for a long time, this talent was just kind of hidden. Um, now there is a complication as well, where you have foreign companies that are hiring really big talent. And then those, that talent ends up you know, building out um, cyber exploits that are spying on journalists um, Mm -hmm. and dissidents. So we have that problem too. (laughs) Okay, so we have uh, 10 individuals who are coming to Hoover this year to spend a year for us off and on uh, in our fellowship program. Jackie, I saw a story the other day, Kevin McCarthy is the Republican leader of the House. Uh, He is telling anyone and everyone who listened that he has something like 144 veterans who are running for office uh, for Congress next year. Uh, What other ways do you see the younger veteran generation, this younger generation of veterans turning out? How else do you see them affecting society? Because we we can do our, you know, our community things here at Hoover. You see people doing, you know, want to do Congress and public service. What other ways do you see them affecting the landscape? I mean, I think what what a veteran has that I can say across the entire generation is you've learned to be disciplined. You've learned to do things even when you don't want to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally learn on some level about leadership. I think all these qualities are really great for community, for building in the community, whether it's um, helping school boards um, or local governments. Um, I, I think there's a real, we don't need them all to be, we don't need all veterans to be Congress, Congress members, but they can make a really large difference in their local communities, you know, serving on city councils. Um, and then also, I mean, what we've seen, we've seen veterans who have used their experience to build a series of organizations. A lot of those organizations have focused on veterans issues specifically, um, but those same skills could be used to um, to make difference in other ways. And I think right. already like with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you see veteran networks, informal veteran networks that are forming to, to try and get you know Afghanis out of Afghanistan. And so you're, they're basically right. forming kind of their own little NGOs that are, that are trying to create, get humanitarian aid. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that, of this veteran generation who 
you know, because of their experiences overseas are really concerned with different populations um, and the humanitarian situation in a lot of different countries and can use their skills then to, to, to do good work without having to be the boots on the ground. Right. This is the great thing about working in a think tank like ours, Jackie, you see ideas blossom. I'll give you an example. I was cleaning out my office the other day because I'm in the building that's soon to be demolished. So I need to clear out my stuff and I'm a pack rat. And I was going through all the business cards I've collected over 20 years now. And you know what I found at the bottom of it, Jackie? A business card from then major HR McMaster. <laughs> who was in the office next to me, but there is a younger HR McMaster is this young promising officer spending years as a national security fellow at Hoover and just kind of, you know, building himself up to a great career. So you see these things happen at Hoover. And that's one thing to look forward to with the veteran fellowship program. Uh, these people will do great things down the road. You just say, gee, I knew that person when. I think that's the hope. And I, I think that the pandemic has really um, expanded our view of what public service is. Um, and so I think that this veteran cohort that we are bringing in, but also kind of as, as this generation of veterans ages out of the military, um, I think we're going to see them doing public service in, in very different ways. Okay, final note, Jackie, is there anything about your work or the program, anything you'd like to, to sign off on or have we covered everything? That's good. Okay, sounds good. I'd like to thank you for your service. I don't want to make you blush. How about if I just thank you for helping us navigate the uh, Veteran Fellowship Program and getting off the ground? You did a great job. Oh, thanks. You know, really, I think this is a special fellowship because it says something about veterans that their identity is not just being a post 9-11 veteran. Like, it's their identity kind of separate of that almost, right? Like, it's not just working on veterans issues. Right. Actually, while we're thanking people, let's also thank, of course, Condoleezza Rice, you know, whose idea this was, uh, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, who led the effort, uh, Admiral Jim Ellis, who helped make the selections, uh, my fellow colleague, uh, my fellow fellow, John Kogan. Uh, these are all wonderful people to work with. Yeah, it was a, it was a really remarkable group. I wish we could have met in person. <laughs> One day soon, I promise. Jackie, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Jackie Schneider is on Twitter, and it's a complicated handle. Here we go. Do you want to spell it out, Jackie, or shall I? I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. <laughs> well, write it down. I'm going to tell you. Jackie Schneider can be found on Twitter at Jackie G. Schneid. And here's how you spell it, folks. J-A-C-K-I-E-G-S-C-H-N-E-I-D. At Jackie G. Schneid. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the podcast. That is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Jackie Schneider and her Hoover colleagues your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matter of Policies and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.